My name is Mark Madison, and I am so very proud to have Fujitsu General America as a sponsor. At Fujitsu, they're focused on partnering with the best distributors and contractors to ensure that each Fujitsu heating and cooling system brings infinite comfort to every end user. I first met Clay Moyle because he was a teammate of mine at Shoreline Community College. We were playing basketball together for one season. Clay is a professional boxing book collector and seller of boxing books and memorabilia, www.prizefightingbooks.com, as well as the author of three boxing biographies. He's also the director of continuous process improvement for Carlisle Transportation. He's a traumatic brain injury survivor and currently resides in Edwidge, Washington, with his wife, Margaret, and their two children. Ladies and gentlemen, Clay Moyle. Welcome to Mark Madison on Books and People. I'm Mark Madison. Today's guest is my old friend, and old being the key word there, Clay Moyle, author, entrepreneur, and overall good guy. Clay, how in the heck are you, man? I'm doing very good, Mark. Thank you. So we met in the season of 1975-76 at Shoreline Community College. That's correct. We were on the same basketball team, and we got along, I think, for for one really simple reason you like to pass and i like to shoot yeah nice that was a nice match huh right you and nemo both were passing guards i was like i like these guys <laughs> that's right nemo was a passing guard very good one he really was yeah, he's a good guy i've stayed in touch with him um i haven't seen him in forever but so you played one more year there you played the following year yes i did for the coach which i have to talking to him i said i can't stay here <laughs> I, I, and was that a tough was that a tough season well we didn't do much better than we did the year you were there i think we were six and 20 when you were and i were there together and eight and 18 the next year so yeah it was still another tough year in terms of one wins and losses but uh you know i enjoyed the season and uh and and playing for john Tresnet nonetheless Okay, well, that's good to hear. I, you know, the older I get, the better I was. Exactly. My, my memory is a little, little jaded and faded now. All these years later, so you stayed. What'd you do after Shoreline? Uh, I, I went up to Western for my final two years. Uh, uh, Western uh, Washington University with Jeff Jensen. I roomed another teammate of ours. We roomed together for those two years. Uh, didn't turn out up there. I decided I'd had enough. I uh, was just going to concentrate on school at that point. And um, we played intramural ball together those two years. And my old friend, Matt Saban, was on that team at Western. Matt Saban. He was. Uh, he went to Woodway where I did in high school. And then he played at Everett for two years. He was a year ahead of us. So he would have been there for his senior year when you were a junior. Okay. I don't remember yeah. him playing on, on the ball club up there, did he? Oh, man, he could shoot. Yeah, he did. Huh. He, he's... He's an old friend. I still stay okay. in touch with him, and, and he's still got a great shot. The guy's like a two-handicap in golf, too. I hate him. <laughs> I, I hate him, and I love him. So so we reconnected after all these years. We had lunch, and we started talking, and I forget how and when, but you had told me you wrote a book, and the book was, was entitled Billy Miskey, the St. Paul Thunderbolt. It has five stars on Amazon. How does a basketball player go about writing a book about boxing? Yeah, and that was actually my second book. The first one was about a fellow named Sam Langford. But, um, you know, about the time I was 32 years old, um, I, I was going through divorce and I decided that was as good a time as any to uh, act on a kind of a long-term desire to learn how to box. So I, 
I went to a uh, boxing gym called the Hillman City uh, Boxing Gym in uh, Seattle in the Georgetown area. I'd go there after work Monday through Thursday for, for an hour or so for about a year. Um, you know, it was, it was a great experience. I mean, you can't beat it for the workout. I mean, it was just uh, grueling and uh, got in terrific shape. It was a great way to clear my mind for an hour and gave me something to hit that was okay to hit. Right. So anyway, it kind of fueled my uh, uh, interest in the sport. And um, one thing led to another and eventually it led to writing a book. You know, I'd always kind of wanted to do that. And that was an, uh, the, the subject of Sam Langford kind of caught my attention and that's what took place. And nobody told you you couldn't. Right, exactly. <laughs> that's the great thing about writing books is that if somebody told me I couldn't, well, I probably, I probably would have tried to prove them wrong, but I flunked high school English and I had a year of junior college. So it's like, what, you know, what, what qualifies me to write six books and 10 ebooks? And the answer is I really like to write and nobody told me I couldn't. So sure. Well, if you're like me, I don't know if you look back on that high school experience and and wish that you had actually taken your literature and English classes a heck of a lot more seriously and applied. Oh, <laughs> right. And I had a great English teacher. He was really a great teacher. He loved English, you know, but I was a flake and, you know, I skipped classes and you're right. Uh, education is wasted on the young. Yeah. You don't necessarily know uh, what might come in handy down the road. <laughs> and, you know, an English major is a pretty good foundation. I mean, you know, in hindsight, I probably would have had, that's probably what I would have done. I would have been an English major with a minor in communication, given what I do now for a living. But, you know, 2020 hindsight, right? Sure. Yeah. One thing I'm glad I did take seriously for I don't know what reason at the time was typing, because I'm sure I've had done a heck of a lot of it ever since. QWERTY. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> did you have any writing mentors? Uh, nope, I did not at all. Um, you know, there was a there were at least a one fellow in particular that I was well actually and my aunt as well who was a uh, who, who is a writer she's knocked out probably 30 or 40 books in her career now mostly romance novels um, that variety but as I was writing the Langford book um, I would I would send her chapters uh, to critique along with one other fellow who I knew with was a ferocious reader um, so you know so, so her help was was invaluable at the time they both gave me good input yeah, I think we all need people we can look up to. I mean, you know, when we were playing ball, we always played up, right? Played up a grade or two to get better. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the things my dad always spoke about when I was a youth was, uh, you know, the, the fact that you get better playing against better competition. Right. And, you know, the at the heart of this podcast is you'll be the same person in five years except for two things, books and people, people and books. So what are you reading and who are you hanging around? Right. You know, mentors really matter. So do you have, a, are you working on something else now? Um, well, you know, I'm kind of a, it's a mixture right now. I, there was a book that, uh, a fourth book that I was heavily involved in researching, uh, which I shared with you uh, when I fell off a ladder in September of 2015 and suffered a head injury. So, you know, I'm just slowly getting back to uh, the idea of completing that effort. But, yes. um, but as, a, but you know, as a result of falling off that ladder and suffering that head injury, my, my focus shifted entirely uh, because of the ensuing symptoms to learning as much as I could about the brain and uh, 
uh, how to facilitate my own recovery. So, um, you know, as I shared with you, um, I've, I've kind of become obsessed of late with this subject of uh, proprioception, which, which of course I didn't know a thing about or wasn't even really familiar with the word. Or couldn't even spell it, if you think exactly. about it. I can now, but yeah, I wouldn't have been able to then. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm laughing with you. I'm not laughing at you. <laughs> well, there's a lot of words I've, I've come across in the last five years during all that research that I wouldn't have been able to spell before, which I can now. But um, And you yeah, have anyway, it was a third uh, grade concussion? Right, exactly. What, is that, which, what does that mean? It, it basically means a mild traumatic brain injury. They categorize these... Uh, uh, based on, you know, whether or not you're knocked unconscious, and if so, for for how long. Mm. Um, if, you, if you're knocked unconscious for anything 30 minutes or less, uh, that's classified as a mild traumatic brain injury, though I would say I don't know what's mild about it. Um, right. It, and, uh, you know, and then it goes from there. You know, I can't remember what the, what the next level is classified as a moderate or medium compared to uh, uh, more severe uh, traumatic brain injury, but um, yeah, interesting stuff. So it wasn't something as exciting as falling off a horse on a wild ride in a roundup. It was you're on a ladder, right? Yeah, and I'm, I'm, you know, and I've been on a ladders all my life, uh, painting, roofing, and uh, sure, in pretty high heights. But this, of all things, was a was about ten foot ladder. Uh, I was probably up all of 10, 12 feet, picking apples of all things. And it was one of those tripod step ladders and uh, it went oh, yeah. one way, I went the other. And, you know, that was the last thing I remember for a couple hours when I found myself in a hospital room. <laughs> somebody somebody found you and drove you to the hospital? No, what happened was my son was there and so was uh, my brother-in-law. Uh, you know, they, they came over to me and, you know, I was out for about eight, nine minutes. Um, they, somebody called 911. So a uh, you know, aid car came. Uh, so when I came to, you know, they were asking me questions, which I have no memory of or knowledge of. Uh, mm. So I, I rode to the hospital in an aid car. Uh, I had a CAT scan done. I have no memory of any of that. I, my first memory really is about three hours later, like I said, when I realized I was in a hospital bed in a room. <laughs> so as a result of the injury, what did you have to relearn? You know, I really didn't have to relearn anything. It was more a matter of, uh, uh, to some extent, rewiring. I mean, um, can you, you give know, an example? Yeah, sure. We, um, I found that immediately after that head injury, when I went back to work and was just going through the day-to-day -day activities, that um, it was much more fatiguing for me. And everything I was doing, I remarked to my wife, felt like it was just harder. Um, and I, what I came to learn and understand was that, uh, you know, when we go through our daily lives, um, we perform many of the same tasks over and over, uh, whether it's things like, you know, shaving when we first get up in the morning, we, don't, right. we all have daily routines. And when we do those things over and over, uh, we essentially start to uh, fire the same set of neurons <laughs> in our brain right. in the same order. And that creates these uh, neural pathways and, and what happens is when those neural pathways be, get established, um, it takes very little effort or thought, conscious thought on our parts to accomplish those tasks because we essentially hardwire our brains to perform those activities. Yeah, we turn it over to our subconscious like tying your shoe or driving. 
Right. When you drive to work sometimes or anywhere, you, you all of a sudden go, geez, how'd I get hurt? Because you're not thinking about it, right? Exactly. But what you find instead is after a head injury, what can sometimes occur is, um, you know, I had an MRI revealed uh, what they termed uh, scattered areas of micro hemorrhaging, basically brain bleeds. And I, I came to uh, understand that basically what I had done was, um, you know, destroy a number of those neural pathways. So, so what was happening was that well, I could perform all of the same activities that I could beforehand, but now I was having, I didn't have those neural pathways. So I was having to draw upon uh, many more resources uh, brain-wise to accomplish those tasks. So it was much more draining and uh, difficult to accomplish, you know, so it just wore you out. Right. Um, well, I, I experienced vicariously through my wife. She was hit by a car on her bicycle in 96 and she had a concussion. And for a year, you know, she, the doctor framed it as a brain bruise. Yeah. And she was putting like lemon juice in the knife drawer and, you know, calling me Steve and, you know, just kind of <laughs> weird stuff. Right, right. For a while. And I honestly, I was a little scared that, you know, that she wasn't going to come back from that. Sure. But well, a little less know, than a year it, later, you know, she was more or less back to normal. Yeah, for somebody like herself or myself, you know, when you haven't experienced something like that and that type of thing starts to happen to you immediately afterwards and you don't know if you're going to uh, come back all the way or how long that's going to last, it's, it causes a lot of uh, anxiety. Right. Um, when she would cry sometimes, she'd get so frustrated because she couldn't say what she wanted to say. She couldn't sure. find the words because of those neural pathways had been interrupted. Right. Yeah. And what I found too was, you know, initially for the first month or so, uh, I was repeating myself an awful lot. You know, I was asking the same question uh, five minutes later, you know. Right. My, my wife and kids are looking at me like, is he kidding? <laughs> is he but drunk? No. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Wow. So for what, your wife, it was scary as well. Uh, yeah, for sure. And it was... Uh, you know, she had just had so shoulder surgery. <laughs> so it was at a time when I really should have been uh, nursing and assisting her as much as possible. And, uh, you know, instead she was having to shift her energies to, uh, to caring for me. A one arm paper hanger, as it were. Yes. Yeah. yeah it was, it was Literally. So how, from the time you fell until you felt like you'd recovered, uh, say, 80 or 90%. How long, what was the duration? How long a period of time? You know what? I, I, I kind of figured I was about back up to about 90%, maybe a year later. A year, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was true for my wife as well. So you've, you've done all this research, you know, all these new words you never knew before. Right. How are you going to take that, or are you going to take that into into a book or you know some way to serve other people with this new knowledge yeah i'm not entirely sure yet um i did just uh, recently I, although i haven't distributed it yet I, i've knocked out a draft of an article related to uh, the topic of um, proprioception and athletic development i actually mm. forwarded that to one party today to get some input um you know not that that's <laughs> that's not exactly solving world hunger or curing cancer or anything right it's but it's it's a topic of interest to me and it's something that absolutely i started to put to practice put, put in practice with um some of the youth that i was working on basketball skills with and so forth um so but but you know and in general 
I think it goes beyond that besides just focusing on on that particular subject in relation to uh, athletic development. I think it's also relevant uh, much more so than most people realize in terms of uh, making people's day-to-day -day lives easier <laughs> because right. uh, you know I think I shared with you one of the things I learned about in regards to um, what proprioception is it's to, it's basically a sense of one's own movement and where their head and limbs are in space mm. that might sound a little funky but it's as simple as for example you know getting in and out of a car having a an accurate sense of where your head is in space so that you avoid banging against the the door jam as you get in and out of the car yeah you don't have to duck when you do that but i do right it's more more even more important for guys like you and jeff right um so like, it's it's an it's the awareness of space and head space and yeah it's uh, pre precisely where your your hands are in space and right i mean when you get into like elite athletic performance i mean that becomes much much more profound in terms of uh their performance levels knowing exactly where your hand is in relation to a basketball for example um it sounds like it's not really that complicated but i mean it like i said the slightest improvement in that perception of where your limbs are in terms of accuracy can can have a profound effect on um, one's ability to efficiently and effectively handle a basketball or pass it for example right but i would think hockey players basketball and football players would have a need to know this information given the amount of concussions that happen in those two sports and there's a fair amount that happens in basketball as well yeah absolutely you know what's that's kind of a theory i've developed of late too mark when i watched uh I mean, I watched somebody like uh, Russell Wilson, for example, over the first six games of the past season. I mean, the guy was just uh, playing out of his mind. He was he was incredible in terms of his uh, accuracy with his passing and decision making and so forth. And um, so in relation to that, you know, you start to think about uh, the blows that a quarterback takes uh, right. sometimes during the season. And um, after going through what I did myself, with the concussion and how much more difficult things became for me to do for a period of time, a long period of time afterward, I started thinking about that in relation to a quarterback who suffers a mild concussion during the season and right and how I mean just how complex and uh, intricate <laughs> our systems are in terms of being able to fully function properly and how how a couple blows like that could really throw their entire system out of whack and their ability to perform in that level could be uh, significantly impacted i think it's i think it's much more um, you know much more uh, influential than most people even realize and it's probably a reason why they really should have baseline testing uh for the, for athletes at that kind of a level you know there's a field of uh of medicine called uh, functional neurology. Uh, and I've been dealing with a, a, a pretty talented functional neurologist down in Oregon by the name of Dr. Glenn Zielinski at Northwest Functional Neurology. And um, you know what they do is work with people who have suffered head injuries and they put them through a really thorough evaluation. Uh, and like it says, they're in essence uh, evaluating uh, their functionality in terms of their ability uh, how their system's working you know their their eyesight their, their balance and how it how it's all working together you know their sensory integration and um, i think if you 
you put somebody through that type of an evaluation at the beginning of the season, if you did something like that with a Russell Wilson at the beginning of last season and compared it to where he was midseason, I wouldn't at all be surprised to find out that there was a, a significant difference. Yeah, the whole let Russ cook, so then they let him cook, and he cooked great, and then all of a sudden it's like midseason, somebody flipped a switch. It did seem that way, didn't it? It sure did. So that that begs the question, well, two things, really. One is, should pre- and post-evaluations be done with every football player at the beginning, maybe even midseason, A? And then B, and of course, this is a whole other field of study, is prevention and recovery. You know, right. How do you prevent those kinds of head injuries, especially in football and hockey? You know, those guys wear helmets, but man, and then the recovery. Those are two kind of separate studies, really. Yeah, and even with the helmets, obviously, um, I mean, the biggest um, detriment to, uh, you know, taking a blow seems to be like, oh, getting, you know, suffering a whiplash, for example. Right. I mean, ha having a helmet on isn't going to do much to lessen the impact of something like that. Um, so I think there's only so much that they can do in terms of a sport like football or hockey in terms of prevention without really uh, impacting the game itself. But in terms of recovery, I think there's an awful lot more that can be done than most people realize. I mean, I, in my own case, after that head injury, I went to a local uh, university uh, neurology clinic and, and they really didn't do anything for me. I mean, they, uh, mm. they, they, they were looking for the really serious long-term uh, injury uh, impact and basically said that, you know, they didn't see anything to signify there would be any long-term damage, but they didn't really offer me any solutions in terms of things that I could do to facilitate my recovery. Uh, they basically just said that, you know, all I could really do was rest and wait. Um, right. and, I, and I ultimately learned that's not true um, to, as a result of learning about functional neurology um, and the services that they provide. You know, I learned that they can do a thorough evaluation and they could prescribe some specific activities that could uh, enable you to, you know, regain that functionality, you know, to get your eyes and uh, various senses working together more effectively. So there's, there's an awful lot that you can do to aid your recovery uh, that I think isn't really that well known. Do any of those solutions in recovery involve uh, Sudoku or crosswords or writing or? No, it wasn't. Uh, it was really more, I mean, you know, a lot of the exercises that I would do in my own case had to do with, um, you know, like vestibular physical therapy, balance uh, okay. exercises. Sure, that uh, makes but, sense. But Maybe a lot yoga. of work. I'm sorry, go ahead. Maybe yoga? Yoga, for sure. Um, a lot of work was related to some actual um, daily eye exercises multiple times throughout the day. Interesting. Yeah, this would have been nice information to have back in 97 my wife was covering from this yeah i mean that's what's really unfortunate is that um it's really not it's still not that widely known and and of course functional neurology which is what i found to be the most beneficial along with some vision therapy that i went through that first year uh isn't uh at this time as far as i know covered by insurance mm. You know, it's, it's so it's so frustrating when you run across some of the things that are the most beneficial for you that aren't covered by insurance. While they're, you know, they'll they'll uh, they'll cover things like uh, antidepressants and you know immediately. You know, no no questions asked. <laughs> right. Well, it, it, 
I can, you know, as I'm sitting here listening to that, all I can think of is how many people a year get a concussion that aren't related to sports? Yeah, you know, there's an awful lot. I mean, I think 50, 100,000, I mean, the number's got to be big. People fall off ladders all the time. People get in car accidents. I mean. People slip on ice. Uh, they slip yeah. on, on wet spots in their kitchen. I mean, I've, I've run across numerous people in the workplace that I know over the last few years that uh, have suffered uh, mild concussions for just those types of things. You know, they slip on wet ice, they small, fall backwards and smack the back of their head in that whip-like fashion. I'm talking about same thing on a wet kitchen floor. And But yeah, there's car crashes. Those are, <laughs> those are pretty routine. Well, and he, Steve Reeves, you know, Superman, he fell off a horse. Sure. You know, and his was, you know, permanent and unbelievable. But I mean, he separated his skull from his spine, I think. It was just like ridiculous... And he had no movement from his neck down. Right. But, but he pioneered a whole new way of recovery before he died. I think that 10 year period where he was actually able to regain some of his, uh, the, those connections through a tremendous amount of force of will and, and rehab. Yeah. There's a lot of, uh, I mean, there's a lot of new things on the, on the horizon of late in terms of recovery. Um, and of course, you know, it's not that it, it really isn't all that long ago that people really didn't know about the um, concept of neuroplasticity, this, this ability to um, create new neural pathways. For right. the longest time, people thought, you know, we were born with a certain number of neurons in our brain. And, and uh, you know, as, as you lost or destroyed neurons, um, you know, you weren't going to be able to re- add to those, you know, to form, right. to create new neurons, which is not true. And obviously you create neuro, new neural pathways, which thank God is, is, is a possibility. <laughs> Do, are, has your research led you to the uh, inside of myelin? Yeah, absolutely. I know. I, I think I shared that with you as that, that book uh, I read a couple of years ago. I thought it was Daniel Coyles. Yeah. Have you Daniel read that Coyles. book, by the way? I read it three times, brother. It's it a, was my favorite book of 2018. I think I underlined about half the book. Oh, the talent code, man. Well, yeah. who turned me onto that was the head soccer coach at University of Louisville. Okay. And Lola. And, you know, when I when I got and started reading it, I said, Ken, this is a revelation. He said, right? He said, it's unbelievable what the development of myelin in the brain allows us to, to, to it's not just muscle memory, it's mental memory as well. You know, and the myelin can be grown as you get older, it gets harder, but especially in youth sports, it's a huge part of uh, an athlete's success, the ability to develop that myelin. Right. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, obviously the author pointed to uh, the importance of what he termed uh, deliberate practice, you know, as a deep and deliberate practice. Exactly. Which was, which was why coaching was pointed out as another thing that was so important. I mean, just. That, that if you actually perform this deep and deliberate practice, very focused practice and very precise, that uh, while form, not only would you form these neural pathways that would enable you to more uh, effectively and efficiently perform that particular skill, but that the more that you did that deep and deliberate practice, you essentially create this process of myelination, which, which they, uh, I thought it was a good analogy. They, they compared it to the, uh, the uh, plastic, insulation uh that goes around a wire right yes um, so i mean and they and they basically said that that insulation would become thicker and thicker with the with the uh 
more of that deliberate practice that you performed. In fact, you related it and pointed to what they termed the 10,000 hours, right, of, right. of deliberate practice and to, to bring that about. But the point of that whole thing was that uh, that, that uh, deliberate practice would, and the concept of the process of myelination would create these, uh, these neural pathways, which would enable one to more precisely and effectively, efficiently perform these skills. It's basically the uh, creation of that skill. <laughs> right. Well, the thicker the myelin, the faster the, the neurons fly through. Exactly. Through the pipe, if you will. You yeah. Know, I, I like the analogy of the pipe. Right. Because I'm an old pipe fitter. So <laughs> if you have a quarter inch pipe, you know, the velocity is going to be limited. But, but if the pipe is four inches, then you're, you're moving that much more whatever, water right. or whatever, through the pipe. Yeah, well, kind of com compared to our internet service, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Going to and 5G. So, and so the, the whole deep practice thing makes the myelination thicker. And then consequently, the ability to do that particular skill, well, there's a Michael Jordan kind of move, you know, up and under and then a reverse lay-in or whatever it is, becomes easier and faster to do. Precisely. And you know what, going, not to beat this proprioception horse to death, Mark, but, no, it's, it's but good taking, stuff. taking that to a next step or next level, um, that concept of myelination in conjunction with pro this issue of proprioception is what's really grabbed my attention of late because like I, I shared with you, the, uh, there was a follow-up video that I saw not long within the next year after reading that book called In Search of Greatness, a documentary that kind of explored uh, what this fellow came to understand as what led to the uh, development of these elite athletes like Wayne Gretzky in hockey or Jerry Rice in football and so forth. And he really was focusing, I thought, a lot on um, you know this deep and deliberate practice and that these athletes perform. But what I thought he missed the boat on a little bit was this whole concept of proprioception in conjunction with that. Because like I said, Wayne Gretzky, as a youth, uh, spent hour after hour on a home rink in which he um, practiced his passing and, and uh, you know, stick handling with the, with the puck, not with an actual hockey puck, but with a tennis ball, because, yes. because he determined that the tennis ball would be so much more uh, difficult to effectively handle than the actual hockey puck. So, you know, he, he really did, he performed deliberate practice, but with a much more uh, complex uh, tool in terms of a you know a tennis ball as opposed to a puck. So I I, I think what he was basically doing was creating that uh, that you know, that uh, hard wiring with the process of myelination with a right. much more complex process. Well, and um, it's a lot like why the Brazilian soccer players are so much better than us because of foostaball or whatever they call it down there futsal, yeah it's F -U -T futsal F -A yeah, yeah, yeah right exactly right. so so essentially they're still playing the same game but on a shorter field with a smaller harder ball which right. means that they get three times or ten times the amount of touches right per minute well, right yeah actually it was like and they're they're playing with less players too less than yes a, it's like yes. five players per team so so it's, so, so it's like yeah. soccer on steroids. Exactly. They're using a, a, a ball that's much more difficult and complex to deal with. And they've got much, much less players in a much more condensed area. 
So, and, and actually they get like 600% more touches in that. 600%. And it, they do it out of necessity because A, they're all poor and B, they have no space. Right. right? And they're also planning on a hard, it's like a hard surface as opposed to grass. Yeah, like concrete. Yeah, exactly. Right. So again, I, it's, it's much more difficult for them. And their, their myelination happens, you know, dramatically faster than a kid from the U.S. who's playing maybe 50 games a year. Right. These guys are playing the equivalent of 500 games a year, essentially. Yeah, yeah. So exactly right. Well, and, and so how does that translate to to other things? Well, to to my way of thinking, uh, any take any skill, and ask yourself how can you speed up or accelerate the myelination process as a public speaker, as a salesperson, as you know, regardless of your job. There's right. a there's a way to to speed up the skill level, and we're going to run out of time, brother, before we run no out problem. of things to chat about. So uh, I just want to make sure that I, I want to make sure that anybody that wants to get your book books plural, how do they go about doing it? Going on Amazon or contact you directly? Yeah, Amazon's the best way to do it. Really, is to you know Google my name. Um, Clay Moyle, M-O-Y-L-E on Amazon. And like I said, at this point, there are the three boxing biographies that have been involved in writing. I wish that I could, that I, I could say that I have a book out there on this concept of proprioception and everything else we're talking about right now. But like I said, right now, it's still all formulating in my mind and I'm debating whether or not to tackle this particular subject. Well, let me end the debate, my friend, by saying that the passion and the research and the information you have is valuable. And it's find a need and fill it. You need to write a book about this. Yeah, I think oh, you know, all, you know, it is a passion. So I think it would be fun for me to tackle, actually. There's no question. I mean, it, anybody listening knows they can hear the passion and enthusiasm in your voice. And, you know, the bottom line is this. A book needs to find a need and fill it. It needs to be able to solve a problem. And, and yours would do that, I believe. Yeah, I think it would uh, be very beneficial to a number of folks, actually. You laid the foundation for it. Now get that article published in Sports Illustrated or the New York Times, and uh, <laughs> that'll uh, that'll get things get the ball rolling. I just there finished book number six today. I finished my fourth edit this, this afternoon. Ah, congratulations! I know. That's, what's, uh, what's the subject? Well, <laughs> uh, it's called uh, "An Old Light Through New Windows." I'm the old light. The new windows are my grandchildren. Nice. And uh, it's 52 questions to change your life. All so right. it's 52 chapters, and uh, I talk about. I talk about ignition master coaching and deep practice and I quote ah. Daniel Coyle extensively in that book because, you know, that's one of those books that literally changed my life after I read it. It's a great book for anybody. It, re it really is. Um, have you read, uh, again, we're going to run out of time here, but have you read uh, You're Not Listening by Kate Murphy? I have not. Oh my gosh. That was my favorite book of, of 2020. That one just blew me away. I'll have to check it out. Well, it's one of those books that you just... You read it and you go, this woman is so smart and this is such great information and it's something everybody needs to improve. So uh, as, the, as the clock winds down here, uh, what, would you, what advice would you offer somebody who says, you know, I have a book in me and I'd really like to write it? Yeah. Uh, what would you tell them? What advice would you offer? Well, depending on what the subject is and you know if it's uh i mean my what i was doing is biographies of so that uh, there was actual research i had to do of the individual's life so that's a different path uh right. as just writing a novel for example fiction. like your aunt who just exactly stuff up right right, right. I, but you know either way i would say just start writing 
uh, that's the most important thing is to start writing and getting it down on paper and, you know, find yourself a mentor, someone that you, you trust and share it with and start getting some feedback. Yeah. My, my process was simple, Clay. It was three pages a day or one hour, whichever comes first, because I run a speaking business full time. So, you know, I didn't have five hours a day to do it. Mm -hmm. But once I start the process, the project, I don't interrupt it. I do it every single day, no matter what, until I'm done writing that first draft. Sure. And then at the end of the first draft, I click save and I, I just walk away from it for two or three weeks. And then I come back and I print it out in a spiral bound notebook. And then I start editing. Yeah. And if all I had to do was write a book first draft, I could probably do three or four a year. <laughs> but yeah, you, as you work, well know, <laughs> the editing is the real work, you know? That's the yes. drudgery after a while. I mean, I finished my my fourth edit and and now I'm going to throw it out to several people and I'll send it to you for some feedback, obviously. But um, yeah, so then the then the process gets a little bit more complicated after that. But yeah. you know, I just love writing. There's something cathartic and healing about it. And I know that's true for you as well. Yeah, I could very easily uh, find myself a place with a view and just uh, enjoy the heck out of uh, doing that full time in retirement. That'd be a lot of fun. Well, that's why I live on the beach in Edmonds, my friend. Perfect. Yeah, looking out over that water. Yeah, well, like Clay, that. it's so good reconnecting. We need to have lunch again with Jeff, and uh, we'll see if we can get Nemo involved. That'd be good. I've talked to him a couple times, but it would be great to see him again. Yeah, I'd love to do that. It's hard to believe that was, you know, 40-some years ago, but, uh, you know, <laughs> yes. TikTok, man, TikTok. Yep. Well, Clay, thank you so much for making the time out of your busy schedule. I really appreciate it. It's great to talk to you. Same here, Mark. I enjoyed it very much. Thanks. This podcast is brought to you by the team at Fujitsu General America. And like this podcast, they're focused on education and development. From the day they sold their first comfort system in North America, they've been unwavering in their focus on training. It doesn't matter if it's application, installation, or service. A better trained technician brings better value to the homeowner. So when you're looking for infinite comfort, Think Fujitsu. Thank you for listening. If I struck a chord, inspire you to action, or piqued your curiosity, let me know. Call or text me at 206-697-0454 or send me an email at mark at sparkingsuccess.net. Should you wish to hire me to speak to your organization or association or order one of my books, simply go to my website, www.sparkingsuccess.net. And remember, make it a great day, unless you have other plans.